Programming notes for the week of May 8th, 2022. Okay, we've got another great week coming up with three awesome interviews and a Mesh Musings episode that are will be coming out. As always, you can join the Patreon if you want to get those interview episodes early or uh, about a month ahead of when they're actually being released. The extended episode summaries will follow this brief intro as per usual on these weekly summary episodes. This is the last week of doing three interviews per week. Uh, That will fall to two starting next week as it was getting to be a bit much both from a production standpoint, but also feedback from consumers. So on Monday, it'll be episode 72, Reliability in Data Mesh, Why SLAs and SLOs are Crucial, which is an interview with Emily Gorsensky at ThoughtWorks. This is a really important and useful episode for with the information on getting specific on what you are trying to achieve with data products and reliability in general in data mesh. Service level agreements and service level objectives or SLAs and SLOs are really, really crucial to actually managing your, your data as, as a product. So I think you'll get a lot out of that one. On Tuesday, we have episode 73, which is ship posting and cake recipes, measuring the return of your data initiatives, which is an interview uh, with Katie Bauer at Twitter. Katie and I had a fun chat on what she refers to as a bit of a champagne problem. How exactly do we measure the returns of our data initiatives? I think it frames a lot of the questions we need to ask But it's also that we're still pretty early in the idea of really measuring our effectiveness with data. So, um, you know, people (laughs) can feel a little bit okay that they're not way behind the curve because everybody's still kind of struggling with how, how do you actually do this? Wednesday will be episode 74. What is Data Mesh trying to achieve? Which is Mesh Musings 14. This is in response to a few articles lumping data mesh in with uh, data technology or architecture first approaches like data fabric and data mesh is about achieving a few specific things. A lot of the content is how you would actually do it because it's about that for the practitioners, right? It is for people that are interested in actually doing data mesh rather than the uh, execs that are part of an organization doing data mesh. But this should should help you kind of get explicit with what you're actually trying to achieve with implementing data mesh. Friday will be episode 75, let's get intentional with data, DDD for data, hyper objects and more. It's an interview with Joao Rosa. So it's tangentially related to being <laughs> explicit uh, from episode 74, but let's talk about intentionality when going for data related initiatives so we can prevent chaos. And we also talked about a lot about the difference between being efficient and effective as efficient is really a manufacturing management approach. And so many people are doing that for data and software. So a good question to ask, I don't have the necessary answer is, shouldn't we care more about being effective than we do about being efficient? Again, please do look to join the Patreon, put it on your corporate card. It will show there is an actual market for data mesh content focused on practitioners. To me, part of the reason there is so little content for practitioners is because the market isn't being explicit that they want it. It is a silent 
thing that so many of you that are implementing aren't saying very loudly to many different people, we want content around XYZ topic. It shouldn't only be going to me. I shouldn't be the only one that is producing this. But right now, it doesn't look from the outside like there is really that much of a market for this type of content. We need to change that. Part of that is the Patreon. I don't really care necessarily that people are are really signing up specifically for the Patreon, but it does. It's something that a lot of podcasts use to specifically show there is a market and there is interest in this. So, you know, if you want more on Data Mesh than just rehashing what is Data Mesh, you need to make some noise out there in multiple ways. And that Patreon can be a proof point I can take to a lot of different parties and say, there is demand here. Please do make this content. So with that, let's go ahead and get to these uh, bottom line up front and summaries for the episodes. And uh, I hope you all have an awesome week. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Emily Gorsensky, head of data and AI at ThoughtWorks Germany. I asked Emily to be on as she put, has put out some phenomenal content relative to data mesh. As a data scientist by training, Emily has a data consumer bent in her views on data mesh. She is therefore often focused on how can data mesh help me, her, as a data consumer. SLAs, or service level agreements, and SLOs, or service level objectives, come right out of the Site Reliability Engineering Playbook from Google. Overall, systems reliability engineering practices are crucial. Emily asked, why don't we bring the rigor of other engineering disciplines to software engineering? So what is an SLA and an SLO? Per Emily, an SLA is a contract between two parties. Hence, why agreement is in the name. This agreement should be written around an SLO with the SLO serving as a specific target. That can be uptime or latency in the microservices realm, but with data, SLOs can get a little, or a lot, more tricky. The theory around developing an SLO is for it to directly connect to business value. Emily believes that when we think about SLOs and data, we shouldn't apply it directly to the data, but we should shift those SLOs left, much like the data ownership in Data Mesh. So when we shift it to the left and have SLOs in the software engineering practice that apply to data, it's a bit convoluted, but Emily explains it well. Emily mentioned another anti-pattern for SLAs in general, which is not connecting them to SLOs. But when it comes to data, most teams don't even have the SLAs connected to an SLO or not. As an industry, software engineering has figured out how to offer great SLAs to external parties. Just look at things like cloud vendors or really anything SaaS, anything you know as a service. You've got great and well-defined SLAs, but many organizations still struggle to offer good SLAs to internal parties. For Emily, software-focused SLAs can even result in worse outcomes for data. If an SLA is about uptime, 
it might result in somebody pushing bad data in a system to continue to hit their service level agreement, even though that data is garbage. When developing SLAs, Emily recommends starting with conversations and negotiations, especially between both parties. If five nines of uptime is not at all valuable to your consumers, why build your data product to ensure five nines? Dig into the actual user needs and what will actually drive user value and start to differentiate between infrastructure-focused SLAs, like is the data product itself available, then the difference between that and data SLAs. Like is the data updated and does it meet quality thresholds? Emily then started to talk about some of the fun, very specific SLAs around data and what does data availability mean. These SLAs can get complicated, but they start to really drive towards what is actually valued by data consumers. What is the actual value of the data? So then you can start to negotiate to drive a high return on investment. Again, we can avoid pre-optimizing for facets of your data product that consumers just don't care about. Per Emily, good SLOs will tell you what you should improve. We should make sure our SLOs are decomposable to, again, get quite specific when useful and or necessary. It is much more difficult to do in data than in general software engineering. We can't think about data in a binary way, such as accurate or not. It is much more of a continuous spectrum. Emily recommends to look at the error budget concept and think about how we can apply that to data. Emily believes SLOs can help you to avoid building unnecessary complexity as well. If your users don't need real-time results, don't build a real-time system. It's the conversations and negotiations that take you from the state of what's possible when you're thinking about what should I build for a data product to what's actually valuable. We should use SLOs to align closely to the use case. There is definitely such a thing as good enough. And don't create these Franken data products, monstrosities that try to solve every need, every single need. It's fine to have two similar data products to serve two distinct needs. Again, be flexible. Think about what makes sense and what's possible and what's really doable in a rational and reasonable way. For Emily, data consumers keep complaining to uh, a centralized data engineering team. They are that centralized data engineering team is the unfortunate middle people. We should use SLOs and move them to the software development teams, you know, the domains, much like we do with data ownership in data mesh. Once an organization learns to do SLOs well, Emily recommends extending that to use SLOs around the data platform as well. But to not mistake the SLOs and SLAs around infrastructure and data products, as mentioned earlier. Emily believes the governance team also has a responsibility to drive standardization around SLOs. This includes sensible defaults. This just makes sense, right? If every single time you go to negotiate an SLO, it's completely new, that just doesn't, that's not scalable. Templates, like reusability, everything in data mesh, you should be looking for where it makes sense to go for reusability. And SLOs is yet another thing for reusability. What should we learn in the data space from DevOps? 
For Emily, the philosophy of resilience is crucial. Repeatability and safety through continuous integration, continuous delivery, or CICD, is a major driver of value in software engineering. How can we apply it to data? How can we make it a major value driver for data as well? In data, we all too often use a systems-oriented approach, so we don't properly attribute value very well, per Emily. How can we measure the value of being able to do ad hoc analysis? Not the value of the analysis itself, but almost the inverse of opportunity cost. What is the opportunity value? If we remove some of these abstractions, can we get to a specific value measurement? I think the answer is probably, but I I just, I'm not seeing a ton around exactly how to do that. As Sadie Martin mentioned in her episode, Emily believes we need to get much more serious about creating good data about our data practices. It takes a fair bit of effort to get to a place where we can repeatedly get good usable data on our data initiatives at scale. We also need to give people more slack in their work time to chase down additional information and insights. Serendipity can only strike if people have the room to react to it. So if you want that really strong incremental value from people being able to actually leverage data from many different sources and combine it, there needs to be enough time for them to actually go and play around with the data and try and find new and interesting insights. They don't just happen simply because you create good and and quality data products. Somebody has to actually access them and do the analysis work on them. Emily wrapped up her thoughts on a few points. First, the pace of change of business has accelerated significantly, and it requires us to philosophically reorient how we think about data. There needs to be more space for people to to do the necessary work. But because everyone is so overloaded already, that isn't happening in most organizations. And second, start from the consumers and their needs and work backwards. It's okay to not create every piece of potentially useful data in a usable fashion up front. Figure out what are the needs you know about and build towards those. Additional use cases will emerge and then you'll know about them then. You don't have to try to serve every potential use case ever. You can really focus on where you know there should be value and execute on that. And then more and more people will discover that this data exists and they'll come to those data owners and say, hey, do you have this additional data? This could be very valuable to us. So I think you'll you'll get a lot out of this. I think Emily is one of the sharpest minds out there when it comes to uh, everything data mesh related. And Resilience engineering, as Tim Tischler also said in his episode, we really, really, really need some resilience engineering uh, approaches when it comes to data. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Katie Bauer, a data science manager at Twitter in their core technology group. To be clear, she was not 
on representing Twitter, only her own opinions. I asked Katie to be on after she posted a, a moderately sarcastic tweet about a colleague asking her what she knows about data mesh. And then she received a lengthy internal document someone had written about data mesh. But the topic isn't about Twitter at all, either the social media platform or the company, more about how do we think about measuring the value of our data implementations, no matter the company. I think the most useful bit of advice from Katie that can feel a bit obvious when said, but it is very often and easily overlooked, measure what would make you drive actions. If a 10x higher than expected or a 90% below expected result isn't going to change your decisions, isn't going to change your actions, while it may be interesting information, is it really important? Should you be setting yourself up to measure the things that aren't important, that aren't going to drive you? If not, don't waste the time to measure it, especially early on in your data measurement maturity. The point is also to get to an objective evaluation, not overly precise measurements. Set yourself up to improve and iterate. Don't make this overly hard on yourself. She also gave the pithy statement, what is valuable is not necessarily valued. A bit more on that one later. Katie has a cake analogy that plays into data maturity well. Think about your need and the other person's capability regarding making a cake. Do you need a fancy cake like for a wedding or is this for a three-year-old's birthday party? One, you probably want to be special. One, if it vaguely resembles something and tastes decent, the consumer, the three-year-old will probably be happy. Is the other person capable of making a super fancy layered red velvet cheesecake or is a cake mix in a box probably more up their alley? How mature are the parties on creating the measurement data and how mature or advanced do you need the output to be? Katie started the conversation talking about some survivorship bias slash other biased ways of measuring. Often she has seen throughout her career that people having success seek to prove their success out via metrics instead of finding the metrics that matter the most. That has some pretty obvious flaws, so we need to move forward towards better measurement practices. For Katie, measuring the value of data science and tooling around that is, ends up being pretty meta. I think this is a really important point as well, that we want to set our success metrics ahead of time and we want to measure against what were our expectations and, and look at it that way rather than kind of do a look back metric. Katie recommends starting out with some really easy measurements around engagement and usage. If it's a platform, what are your daily active users, weekly active users, and or monthly active users? And what is the actual most useful metric there? Should people actually be leveraging your project daily? Heck, for this podcast, I have metrics about unique listeners on those same timeframes, but daily active listeners is such a useless metric. It's all dependent on when episodes are released or other factors. Think about what is your addressable market as well and, and what percent of that market you have. She talked about how net promoter score is a very lagging indicator. So it, while it can be useful, it's kind of well after the fact. You're not really figuring out are people using it and are they happy until you kind of extract that uh, value measurement out of them. When thinking about metrics, there are two things that really stand out to Katie. First, what is your useful granularity? Don't get overly precise if you don't need to. 
You want an objective evaluation and anything past that can become overkill, which has an inherent cost. And second, what is your useful time scale? Is it on a micro scale where the task should take five minutes to complete, so a difference of five minutes is a big deal? Or is it a much longer time scale? When thinking about what to measure, ask yourself, what does your company value? Is it shipping new features? Is it usage? Is it cleaning up tech debt, deprecation, etc.? What matters? Katie threw out uh, that great phrase of what is valuable is not necessarily valued. So think about what people care about regarding your information that you're going to be getting when you're thinking about what you're going to measure. It might not be the most valuable information, but it might be highly valued or vice versa. At the end of the day, are you there to be right or to serve your constituents with what they want? It's a question I can't really answer for anybody. (laughs) Katie's Getting started on measurement advice includes starting with something concrete. Use that initial measurement as a learning stepping stone. She mentioned that it can be hard to recover from measuring the wrong thing or getting your measurement wrong. People can jump to the conclusion of measuring is bad. So set yourself up via expectation setting that you will iterate on your metrics. I think this is really useful in framing how to think about getting going. It's not that this is the most that this is the most built out framework and this is exactly how you should approach measuring these 43 different things. It's kind of be kind to yourself as you're moving forward. Think about what are you really trying to get towards and what can you use as stepping stones? Don't try and jump from A to Z. Go down the, the path, right? Think about how you're going to get to Z but if you're starting at A, it's fine to just <laughs> your next step to be to B or C or D. It's totally great. So I think you'll learn a lot from this one. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in today's episode? I interviewed Joao Rosa, principal consultant at Xibia. We discussed domain-driven design for data, the importance of intentionality in preventing chaos, being effective instead of efficient, and the concept of a hyper-object. To start at the end, Joao talked about the need to embrace complexity when dealing with software. We need to treat the data and analytics as a software process. If we try to abstract away the complexity, we lose the nuance, and that nuance is what can make all the difference in terms of the value of your data. Software is not like manufacturing, where complexity is very costly. Embracing complexity was something Andrew Harmel Law and Danilo Sato mentioned in their episode, as did Lorenzo Nicora in his episode on domain-driven design for data. This was a pretty broad-ranging conversation starting with domain-driven design, or DDD, for data. Joao believes we should apply the principles of DDD to everything controlled by software. And when thinking of data as a product, data is definitely controlled by software. One of the big challenges with bringing something like DDD to data is that there aren't tools. 
and most challenges in the data space have historically been addressed with a tool-first approach. There is a desire to move quickly and just solve challenges, but it's not possible to do that with DDD in Joao's view. A very interesting point of view Joao has in is developing software is a learning process and working software is a consequence of that learning. I think that's a pretty deep thought. <laughs> I don't know uh, if a lot of people want to kind of get into that philosophical point, but I, I, I think it's interesting to think about it that way. With the move to cloud and the easy consumption of new tools, creating data has become very easy. But Joao believes that in an enterprise, there needs to be very clear boundaries and contracts between domains to prevent overlap and confusion and chaos. The conversations between teams are hard because all of those conversations are context dependent. You can't kind of automate away a lot of those conversations. Even at the software level, your interface to your data products is a form of communication. Joao brought up the manufacturing-oriented philosophy of software development and why it causes so many challenges. It is very much about efficiency and lean development. That works well when you are producing physical goods, but he doesn't think it does for software. Small incremental changes to software are not costly in a CI-CD world, but the creation initially of data and software is expensive. So we need to move away from that manufacturing approach about being so afraid and, and trying to get everything nailed down ahead of time. But that would mean management releasing more control, which many are not willing to do. For Joao, there's also a major value to discovery about what you've already deployed. How are people using it? What is the market slash consumer base telling us? But in general, we spend far too much time focused on new features and not discovering new things about what is already in production. And those small incremental improvements are often the things that generate real value. And if the investment is small to generate those changes that generate good returns, those small changes are a significant point of potential value leverage. Joao brought up Kent Beck, who said, once software arrives to production, it changes itself. Measuring the way that people are actually using software so you can change it, that feedback is really, really crucial. Data mesh, if done well, can really set up organizations to succeed because it can make people effective rather than efficient. We create data products that are easy to use but have unexpected consumption. So the goal of you need to create this data product with these exact features is the efficiency, but you want to be effective. You want to create something that can be used in unexpected way. People can discover new things. We lower the friction to those new, useful, potentially very valuable insights. Efficiency is doing the task at hand with little waste, but is that effective in creating business value? Joao doesn't think so, and neither do I. Intentionality is a key theme for Joao in this talk and in general. If you have autonomy without direction, it can create chaos. In her episode, Jessatron or Jessica Kerr mentioned the need for agency instead of autonomy. Autonomy is you figure it out. Joao quoted Jessatron as saying, you provide me the direction, but not the path. 
we should also be constantly assessing what we are trying to accomplish and are we actually headed in that direction? What is the business problem you are trying to solve? That question comes up in about 25 to 30% of these conversations, these interviews. And it's funny how difficult that is to stay on topic rather than people wanting to play with technology and go kind of off of the business problem. But at the end of the day, we're trying to solve business problems. When about 80% of our time is spent trying to code and only 20% uh, is spent on setting our intentions, what is the outcome? Joao believes if we flip that and focus much more on what we are trying to achieve, solidifying the communication and the understanding before going and coding, that would have a far better outcome. Right now, Joao believes that data is where DevOps was about five years ago. We still, as an industry, need to build the body of knowledge on how to do this right. The DevOps engineer title is starting to fade, and we are calling them by what they are, platform engineers. But as with DevOps, we need to start to look at the long-term payoff of building a platform. Not all organizations should build a platform. This is one thing I talk about a lot of when people are looking at data mesh, not everybody needs to build out the full platform and all of those things. If you're a large organization, you definitely need to do it. But that's a key part of data mesh. So if you're not building out the platform, you're probably not doing actually data mesh. And that's fine. If you don't need it, don't do it. (laughs) Joao brought up the need to think about the long-term viability of all data initiatives, not just the platform. Data products must be sustainable, which is why so many guests have recommended starting with source-aligned data products. Lorenzo Nicora does a great job of explaining why in his episode. It's, it's kind of a long explanation, but he does a phenomenal job there. One of Joao's clients is leasing large industrial equipment and has switched to proactive maintenance instead of waiting for things to break and fixing them then. This has created a more reliable service for customers and lowered maintenance-related downtime costs. How can we apply similar thinking to data? Joao brought up a hyper object, and that's an object that spans time and space. Joao sees data as a hyper object, but we typically think of data as a snapshot in time. How do we store data today to answer the questions of tomorrow? And how do we apply intentionality to data so we are stop so we stop storing data for the sake of storing it? This philosophy better enables us to think of data as a product and reason about the evolution of a data product. If I were to sum up Joao's thoughts, it would be to focus more on intentionality. Why are we doing something? And, and is it working? Embracing complexity and looking to solve more through conversation instead of tooling.